Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, coming to you from the pop-up Chinese studio here in Beijing. I'm Kaiser Guo, joined as I am this week by Jeremy Goldcorn, the man behind Danway.com. How are you, Jeremy? I'm doing very well indeed, Kaiser. How things in Tennessee? Fabulous. Yeah, as, as they ought to be. Uh, and also joined, of course, by David Moser, Academic Director of the CET Program in Beijing. How are you, David? Very good. Thank you. So as you guys surely know, and everyone listening knows, a magnitude 8.1 earthquake struck the Kathmandu Valley of Nepal on the afternoon of April 25th. Uh, the quake uh, caused more than, I think, 8,000 deaths and uh, more than twice that number of injuries, something like 18,000 injuries in Nepal itself, in India, in Bangladesh, and in the Tibetan Autonomous Region. It also caused significant cultural, uh, structural damage to the, the Nepalese capital and surrounding areas, essentially destroying quite a number of important cultural heritage sites. The quake also set off, of course, an avalanche on Mount Everest, which sent uh, snow careening down the hillside down to uh, the from the world's highest peak and burying Everest Base Camp, resulting in a number of fatalities as well. Uh, and just yesterday, on May 12th, there was another earthquake in Kathmandu Valley, um, the latest earthquake, which destroyed you know any sense of calm that might have been restored in the wake of the April 25th earthquake, uh, was reported by the USGS, the US Geological Survey, at 7.4, 7.5, I think. Um, and uh, remember that, that, that the MMS scale is logarithmic, so that, that doesn't mean that it's you know quite the same size. The, the severity, nevertheless, was like, um, you know, of the 25th quake was several times greater still. But uh, it still resulted in 90 deaths and over 1,900 injuries reported so far as of today. So today we're going to talk about uh, relief, rescue, rumor, rubble, and reporting on this terrible catastrophe. And so joining us on the show today are two Beijing-based reporters who were on the ground in Nepal after the earthquake. Julie Mackinnon is a correspondent for the Los Angeles Times Beijing Bureau, and she uh, flew to Kathmandu Sunday the 26th. Welcome to Seneca, Julie. It's great to have you on. You're very overdue for a visit with us. Thanks, Kaiser. Great to be here. And we're also delighted to welcome Tomas Sajewicz, who is a chief correspondent in the Beijing Bureau for po Polish Public Radio. Uh, and as any journalist in China will tell you, the best-dressed foreign correspondent in China, hands down. Great to have you here, Tomas. Thank you for the invitation. Great to be here. Um, anyway, um, uh, enough levity. I mean, have so I, I'm wondering, have either of you actually covered natural disasters before in your time as reporters? Um, the last big natural disaster I covered was the Japan, Japan tsunami in 2011. Uh, right, the triple disaster. Right. The Wow, that was that was 2011, right? That was February, March 2011, is that right? Four years ago, March. Wow, wow. I was before in a Sichuan earthquake, but not right after. I was weak after the... That was May of 2008, right, right, right. Nepal, is that ordinarily part of your beat, Julie? Uh, it is not. It's normally the responsibility of the LA Times India Bureau chief, but he was in the U.S., um, I believe, for his bachelor party. So I was drafted <laughs> suddenly into service and uh, was um, glad to have the experience, actually. So, uh, you know, so aid, whether it was you know, catastrophe relief provided by the government to the afflicted nation or international aid efforts, um, I mean, they, they both tend to, they all come under quite a bit of scrutiny, but it, it's not always evenly applied. In, in Nepal, there was, you know, a lot of Twitter-based backlash against, for example, early coverage by the Indian media. Um, you know, there was a lot of criticism of, of for example, the, the politics that were being played between uh, well, among Beijing, Kathmandu, and Taipei about Taiwan relief efforts. Um, there, there was, uh, you know, a lot of controversy over uh, specifically. This. Perhaps Kaiser, you should mention what happened that uh, the Taiwanese uh, rescue 
uh, search uh, teams were not allowed to That's right. All right. Let's let's start with that. What was what was the deal there? Was I mean, I've heard I mean Beijing of course denied that they had any actual input in this. Uh, did you look into this issue at all, either of you? Well, I, I did see some headlines to that effect, but I believe it was resolved because actually on my flight on the way home, I flew out with a huge squad of Taiwanese rescue workers. So Taiwanese rescue workers did eventually go there and did work on the ground. The ones I talked to said they did not rescue anyone who was alive, but um, they oh, were sorry. on the ground. Yeah. Yes, I had the same experience. I was on the on the last Monday on the way back. I was also uh, flying through uh, Kunming, and also there was a few Taiwanese rescue workers. Oh, that's so good to hear. Time. I'm glad. Uh, and so this didn't actually end up becoming a, a significant issue. Well, I mean, I don't know if they were delayed, but uh, okay. uh, there was actually some interesting politics around foreign rescue squads on the Thursday after the quake, I was out on the scene where some Los Angeles County um, fired, Los Angeles County Fire Department and Fairfax County, Virginia Fire Department rescued, helped rescue a 15 year old boy from the rubble of a guest house. I believe it was the Hilton guest yes, house, but it was, was not the Hilton hotel. This was the kid after 122 hours, right? Yes. 144. 144 and, hours, right, right. And just that morning in the Kathmandu papers was uh, a very senior official from the Nepalese army suggesting it was time for foreign rescue workers to go home and get out because there was nothing left to do. Um, <laughs> and subsequent to that, there were also some rescues. Yes, Julie, because exactly in that day, exactly when, exactly in the moment when they were pulling this uh, poor boy out of the rubbles, the uh, Nepalese government announced that the um, rescue mission ended, and now it's only search mission. And the difference is, of course, that they did not expect to find anybody alive. Right. And also, there was a lot of controversy at the beginning. Because, for example, we had a 81-man strong um, team from Poland res rescue team. And uh, I know that not everybody was invited to Kathmandu. That there were teams waiting, and uh, I think I believe it was the third or the fourth day after the earthquake that uh, they said, now we have enough rescue missions uh, on the ground in Nepal, which is like really hard to understand, knowing how um, big damage this quake uh, brought to, to Nepal. Yeah, give us a sense of the actual devastation that was brought by the quake. Was it, I mean, we were given to believe that it was pretty much across the entire valley, that it didn't look like there was one stone left standing on top of another from just the pictures that we had seen. What was your sense? You were still able to find hotels to stay in and... I mean, you can drive through large parts of Kathmandu and you can drive for a mile or two and not see anything. And then you turn the corner and a whole building will have collapsed. So the destruction is spread out in a very uneven and unpredictable way. I mean, certainly older buildings were more um, subject to damage. Clearly, the temples, several hundred year old temples, um, not reinforced for earthquakes, fell down. But modern buildings fell down, too. Um, and I think this is actually typical in a lot of earthquakes. Right. And also, we have to mention that much worse situation is in the village, in the rural areas. And, and, and some of them are not reached by any, any help. In, it's even almost three weeks from now. And uh, that kind of really bad situation you could see even like 60 kilometers out hmm. uh, east uh, of, of Kathmandu, where I, I, I was. So uh, it was quite different from the from the capital, but because in capital you didn't see like the the sea of devastation, which you could see in the rural areas. In the rural areas, and these are because the the housing is constructed from from just what uh, no, mud brick. Most likely, 
this is the, the one factor and another factor is it was closer to the epicenter right the epi- actual epicenter was far away from Kathmandu itself 80 kilometers okay 80 kilometers east of it right. you use miles we use kilometers so. 50 miles <laughs> yes. 50 miles are you Americans <laughs> and how would you evaluate the Nepalese government's relief efforts um Hey, Tomas, if you want to take a crack at that. Yes, um, I was... Uh, first of all, I don't know. I understand that Nepal is one of those countries uh, less prepared for the earthquakes, definitely. But uh, there was, uh, in the first days and until my last day, and I said for a week, there was a, there was a sense of chaos. And the, the biggest indicator is that I did dozens of interviews with people. Mm-hmm. There was no single person not begging Nepalese government for help, not begging sometimes Nepalese government for food, sometimes for water, but every single person was asking, where is the government? And also, we, we, we also um, we saw the protests, which was outbursting next to the parliament uh, uh, in Kathmandu, also just by coincidence uh, covering some rescue mission. In the outskirts of uh, Kathmandu, I saw people protesting and it was like for Christ's sake five kilometers from the city center mm-hmm. and it was the sixth day after the earthquake and people were still out they didn't have enough because they have some water and food but not enough so they blocked the ring road in Kathmandu and I witnessed that and you can imagine what situation was out of Kathmandu if that kind of scenes were uh, witnessed in Kathmandu. So the government is totally in disarray they don't even have a constitution is that right? And so was there any sense there that there was usually in a situation like this in the in in quote normal countries, there's a, sp- a government spokesman who has figures at hand and is giving reports. But I get the sense that there was nothing there. Um, well, Nepal's government uh, is quite weak and they haven't had local elections in I think about 20 years. And during at the time this happened, I believe it was the prime minister was out of the country for a health check, the president, I think, did end up sleeping on the lawn of the palace or something. Um, so, I mean, the government was affected. It's a weak government to begin with, and their operations were affected. Um, but I think we, you know, the Nepalese armed police were out on the scene. I was at many places where Nepalese armed police were out there looking for people, rescuing people, delivering aid. So it's not like they weren't there, but... This is a huge situation, and it would be in any country. But you will admit that people were angry on the government, would you? <laughs> I do think I met some angry people, but I will tell you, on my way back, I flew through Kunming, and I was in uh, no, Guangzhou, and I was delayed in Guangzhou because of a rainstorm. And I will tell <laughs> that you, was angry I remember people. that the day. I remember that day. Were more angry in the Guangzhou airport than any people I met in Nepal, and this might be about expectations of government um but uh i did not meet as angry people as i did in the guangzhou airport (laughs) julia of course i understand you but the 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 sense of anger of those people left uh, with nothing what they they could do i i I can give you another examples for example um, that the monks from the monasteries were bringing water or food you know, those were, or, or I met an amazing young foreigner uh, called Pedro from Portugal and uh, who survived the earthquake and he lived in the Spanish consulate and he, with his friends, they were bringing food from the consulate and they were buying some, some food and they were bringing to people uh, and, uh, in, in, this, uh, in these places where, where, where they were the tents. 
And it was amazing because there were almost fights for this water and this food. Mm. Mm. What accounts for the seeming lack of preparedness in what one would think, I mean, it is one of the most seismically active areas of the entire globe. It's where, of course, you know, the Indian subcontinent rams up against the, the main Asian plate, uh, I mean, causing the, the... One of the worst growth. fault lines right. in, in, in the continent, yeah. So uh, I, I remember talking to Tomas a couple of days ago, and I saw you there. There, there were a shocking small number of helicopters, for example. How many helicopters in the entire country was it? Something? According to the data released in the in the first days, it was twenty helicopters, which were used by military uh, Nepalese military. Only twenty helicopters. So you can imagine we're talking about twenty eight million people country in the mountainous area of of of, of, of Himalaya. So um, all the rescue operation, even without more, let's not all a lot of rescue operations, even without the earthquake should be considered uh, with help of, of, of choppers, 20 of them. Jeremy, when you were watching in, in 2008 the coverage of, of, of the earthquake in Sichuan, how do you, how do you, you, you think that um, that stacked up against uh, what you saw in Nepal? The, the international coverage of Sure. It. Well, I mean, not the coverage itself, but I mean, well, the, the performance of, of the respective states. These are well, both. Uh, the Chinese state marshaled its massive resources um, and um, sent, you know, huge numbers of troops. Um, and you also had a fairly well organized citizen response. Um, but this is a much richer country uh, with a much better organized government, mm -hmm. um, which is what you'd expect. But I mean, I I think what I'd like to ask about the the Sichuan earthquake is. The, the numbers of fatalities were so much higher. Um, yes. I mean, what was the final death toll? Like more than 70,000? Yeah, 780,000. Uh, 80, right, right. um, so, uh, so far, uh, including the aftershock or the second quake, um, we're looking at, you know, under 10,000 people. That's right, 9,000, less than 9,000. Is it simply a matter of numbers that the population in Sichuan is so much higher and, 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 and denser? Or is there, are there other reasons why uh, the fatality, uh, fatalities are so much, so much more uh, in Sichuan? Julie? Well, I think the timing was actually in a way fortuitous. It was midday on a Saturday, so students were not in school buildings. People were... Farmers were out in the fields, um, you know, people were not inside in large respects. So in that sense, it was fortunate timing if something like this does have to occur that, um, you know, a lot of people were not indoors. Right. That probably does have a lot. I mean, I remember when I felt the quake uh, in Beijing right. here even, and I remember it being, it was what, the middle of the afternoon, it was too Two thirty, around right? two thirty. It was Monday, right? It was on a, a weekday. Uh, there, there was there was some controversy over uh, the ability of the, the Indian and Chinese governments to, to mobilize uh, their militaries to, to evacuate um, Indian and Chinese nationals from Nepal. I didn't really follow this too closely. Could could either of you fill me in on um, was there was that was that an issue at all? 
I, I know that I, I saw it sort of buzz up briefly. I, I haven't seen any Chinese national without help. I mean, like uh, I saw many nationals from European Union countries uh, uh -huh. uh, which were seeking for help on the third day when I was and they were trying to uh, get out because it was a pretty chaotic situation in the airport. But uh, as uh, I, I, I haven't noticed any Chinese groups. Have you, Julie? Well, when I was coming in on Sunday night, um, I was on a very empty uh, China Eastern flight. And um, there was actually two flights going in from Kunming at the same time. At first, we flew almost all the way to Kathmandu, had to turn around and come back because mm. the airport was suddenly closed. And when we were waiting to take off again in Kathmandu, you know, we said to the um, ground crew, like, well, you know, you've got a flight here with 10 people on it. You've got another flight there with like 10 people. Why don't we all just get in the same plane and we can just take <laughs> one plane? And the answer was, well, we need to fly both these planes there so we can get all the Chinese people out. Ah, right, right. Yeah. That, that makes sense. Yeah. I think well, it was pretty easy to organize exactly evacuation for Indians and, and uh, Chinese citizens because there's a lot of flights between Kathmandu right. and uh, Guangzhou and Chengdu there twice, um, Kunming. Uh, so there was a lot of possibilities to evacuate those people, I think. When, uh, a few days ago, after whenever it happened, I saw, you know, on CCTV, you saw footage of the disaster relief uh, crew getting into planes, going there, wearing fairly distinctive clothing, you know, obviously to represent China. And I assume India did the same thing. I didn't see anything about that. But what was there a sense that, like there that, that, that you could see a Chinese presence, that there were Chinese uh, rescue workers there, and that the, the local people could see a Chinese presence there? Because I know it, both India and China, this was a little bit of a soft power, if that's the right word for it, maybe for this, this effort. So was there a Chinese presence there? Uh, for sure. I mean, uh, I noticed it because I came in on a flight with some Chinese rescue workers. Um, and, uh, you know, I noticed many other Chinese groups there. The Guangdong Lions Club was there and a Shanghai Clean Water Lions Club? Was there. What's that? <laughs> oh, yes. I, I remember them from the, from the earthquake. Like Rotarians, the, you know, things like that. Sure. I know what the American Lions Club it's is. I don't know thing. the Shandong, I mean, it's the Guangdong thing. Lions Club. It's part of the same. Oh, okay. Thing. Um, it's globalization, David. Get with it. <laughs> Chinese, <laughs> Chinese Red Cross was there and a number of other Chinese groups, and they all had very prominent flags and banners and everything. But, you know, the thing I uh, think was quite salient was out in the middle of Kathmandu, there's a big kind of clearing, sort of a public park, and some tents were set up there. And the Indians had brought some tents, and the Chinese had brought some tents. And the exactly. Chinese <laughs> tents were blue with big, you know, Chinese flags on them. And I have to say... If you're ever in a disaster zone and you're trying to get a tent, get a Chinese tent because they were nice tents. They were quilted. <laughs> Noted. They had, they had wow. screens. They had yes. zippers for they the screens. They looked like a house, like a small house. <laughs> they were like the bomb. They were the best tents. And people in them were very happy. But also exactly, you could you could um, um, recognize relief exactly from the tents because Indians, they were a lot of uh, colors of the Indian flag on, on them. Let's talk a little bit about Nepal and the Chinese mind. Um, Nepal is a very popular tourist destination. You were saying that there are daily flights and twice daily from, from Chengdu, there are flights from Kunming, there are flights from, from Guangzhou. Uh, what does Nepal represent and, and why were, were people so stirred to action, um, particularly with, with this? Culturally, obviously, birthplace of the Gautama Buddha, uh, 
I think is... exactly that people are looking for. I'm not sure about it, but as I was uh, talking for the for the shop with the shop owners and they were asking where you're from, I said I am from China. So of course there was this bargaining issue <laughs> <laughs> popping out. But uh, mostly people were saying that yes, the Chinese tourists are going to visit the temples. I went to amazing store of. Uh, Uh, Buddhist artist making this uh, religious art and uh, he said Chinese are my only and the best customers mm. so they they are buying all these tankas and they are bringing this uh, to, 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 to China so I think uh, this is big, big uh, part of I think that Chinese tourists are less likely going climbing for, to Mount Everest and uh, and but I might be wrong or going for trekking like for example Israelis David, do you have anything to talk about? I mean, I'm sure you, you, you've met a lot of young people who I, I, I know that in recent years I've seen um, quite an interest in sort of all things high Himalayan. Um, there, it, it's it's sort of very much part of the the kind of nouveau bobo kind of identity to be, um, you know, to wear the batik prints and to kind of the the, the beads and the Buddhas and whatnot. Yeah, but I think it's not a any kind of a, a large... I think it, it, the, the ordinary Labai Sin don't go there. I mean, but the, for tourism, yeah, there's a lot of yuppie tourism. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yuppie tourism, exactly, because the, this is still not posh. I'm sorry for right. saying that to go to Kathmandu even, because even there is not this infrastructure for, for the luxury tours, which I would think that most of this clientele, Chinese clientele, which will choose easier places to go mm-hmm. for tourism. They're going to go on a cruise, which is the subject of a recent podcast. Well, <laughs> they will go to Antarctica, first of all. You know that there are these cruises to yes, Antarctica. Yes, there are. This is, this is the But there, there are Chinese trekkers. The first night I, w- I went along with the Chinese rescue workers to a Chinese hotel where this rescue worker knew of the existence of this Chinese hotel because she had been on vacation in Nepal just over Chinese New Year. I see. And in front of the banner, uh, the front of the hotel, there was a banner, you know, welcome Chinese trekkers uh, to uh, Kathmandu. And I was happy to be there. The hotel had a generator. I was able to plug in my computer and write my story. So yes. um, there is some, t- you know, trekking tourism there from Chinese now. I do want to say, though, that I think Chinese, um, you know, influence in Nepal is growing and they're trying to grow it in a, in a government to government level. I mean, in the in the hotels, you know, you can get China Daily, even in the middle of the earth, r- right after the earthquake, China Daily is being published there. Thank God. <laughs> What would we do without it? Um, you know, and some of the local journalists I spoke with mentioned that, uh, you know, China Daily has printing partners there. China has been taking out ads in Nepalese papers that are touting how developed um, Lhasa is and all the improvements that have been made in Lhasa by the Chinese government. And I thought that was a very, very interesting um, thing to hear about. And this reporter thought that because of those large ad contracts, Nepalese publications were softening their coverage of China because mm-hmm. uh, they were worried about losing that revenue. Yeah. And uh, how, how prevalent is the fear of China, do you, would you say, in Nepal at the moment as you know, a potential military threat or just a country and a people that might just overrun Nepal? I don't think there's that, but there definitely are Tibetan exiles there who are feeling the increased reach of the Chinese government Mm -hmm. in Nepal, for sure. Um, Restrictions on displaying the Dalai Lama's picture and stuff like that. In Nepal? In Nepal. Interesting, interesting. Uh, 
you uh, one thing that we, we were talking about as we were walking over here is the, the relative ease of actually reporting from there coming from China where, where things were so t- talk a little bit about that about uh, you said that you had a good story for us about uh, how much easier it was to actually get reporting done there uh, well I have a friend who works here in Beijing for a Scandinavian um, outlet and he was telling me a story about how the first night they got there and they were setting up a live shot in front of some you know severely crooked buildings and it was night and they brought some lights and like moss to a flame, the locals came out and were sort of crowding out the shot. And a Nepalese policeman, you know, approached the scene. And my friend, you know, was immediately overcome with a sense of dread, having been in China for a couple of years, like, oh, geez, here comes the police. And then the policeman walked up and, you know, was kind of friendly. And my said, my friend said to him, like, hey, can you take these people and move them 50 meters down the street so we can do our shot? And the policeman said, okay, sir. (laughs) And they went on with their job. So, you know, I think people found it sort of uh, the Beijing press corps that, you know, went down there was sort of uh, pleased. And I I had many just very on-the-spot interviews with Nepalese police commanders who were very happy to talk with me. There was no restrictions, and I found it a very open reporting environment. Yes, people were very open and helpful. Also, the the, 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 the police there, seriously. I think, are we suffering from the Beijing police syndrome? (laughs) 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 That everywhere in the world we're just afraid to approach one. David, you had a question that you wanted to get in there. Just the India-China competition here. I mean, uh, I, I have not actually have not paid a lot of attention because I've been too busy. But I haven't seen a lot in the media, Chinese local media. I don't know about you, Kaiser, uh, about uh, building up, you know, sympathy for the Nepalese. Uh, so I'm just wondering. I mean, there are a lot, there's a lot, you know, stronger personal ties with Nepal and India. Many more Nepalese in India and vice versa. What's, uh, you know, did What's you see the, any evidence the, the balance of, of, yeah, power. did you see balance of power here of, of the concern for the, for the, for the victims? In the police media, there was a huge sense of, uh, I remembered even the headline that two giants are helping Nepal. Right. And it was, of, of course, uh, about India and China. And uh, yes, you can imagine after the first days, after the, that kind of disaster, it was only the gratitude and uh, uh, just mentioning how much more help uh, those both countries are are shipping to to Nepal, but uh, obviously there there is a competition, and uh, Nepal is the competition field for for China and 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 for Nepal. And but, but at this stage, at this stage, you didn't see with the rescue with the rescue emissions. I mean, maybe one sign that uh, Chinese were not allowed to bring helicopters, and Indians they were. Mm. They were not in uh-huh. Chinese helicopters, but they were. Uh, Indian helicopters, but this is my own observation. <laughs> okay. oh, interesting. I, I saw two figures stuck out when reading some articles about it. They, they said they had an urgent need for something like $350 million for the immediate disaster relief. Mm-hmm. And then maybe, you know, for long term, you know, many billions. But $350 million is nothing. Right. Nothing. It's That's nothing. striking. I mean, yeah. Nepal's GDP is about $20 billion. It's oh, lower than all 50 U.S. states. It is a very, very poor country. Yes, it's a very extremely poor country. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Tomas, how did you feel about the overall tenor of, 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 of uh, media coverage of this, I know that we we talked earlier, and you had some misgivings about some of the way um, the coverage yes, you well, see. I had I have I have very personal moments uh, in, uh, in in Nepal, and uh, f- 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 with some of them I cannot get through. Even that's why I'm going back to Nepal to more understand what happened there. Because when I was the third day, 
uh, after the earthquake strode to Nepal. And uh, all of us we were overwhelmed of uh, this footage. Uh, and uh, people are begging for help. There is no water, no food. And suddenly I landed in, in Kathmandu. I went to my hotel and there was uh, two liters of complimentary water. It was not mm. five-star hotel, I want to mention. It was just the regular hotel. Um, in, in the morning, when it was the third day in the breakfast, uh, there was 20 stations of food on, for the breakfast buffet. Afterwards, we went to, with the rescue team um, to, 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 to see um, people in need. And those people were really begging for help, for food, for water. But if you will go 200 meters farther, there was supermarkets open full of water and food. There was bakery opens on the third day. And for me, it was really hard to understand why it's happening. Julie, what's your, what's your feeling about Did you that? see any of this, this incredible disparity that... Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's that was clearly in evidence, but... You know, of course, prior to the quake, it's a society where things are distributed unequally. So yeah, this exacerbates that situation. Yeah, quakes tend to knock down the old poor quarters, right? And right. The people who die tend to be the, the poorer people, whether it's in, in Iran or whether it's in China or whether it's in Nepal or Turkey or you Mexico. Know, and, uh, you know, as a guy who runs a supermarket, if he opens a supermarket, I mean, what can you expect? He's going to just take everything in the supermarket and give it to people? No, it's the, the not... government we should buy it out and then deliver it if those people have not. That, that's what my expectation is. Right. Exactly. I, I read something and I didn't know what to make of it that, that some, some of the government officials were actually trying to intercept the disaster relief uh, funds and things to, to distribute it, allocate it along sectarian lines. What are they talking about? Does that make sense? What a sectarian yeah, what context mean? Well, I, I heard only about the prime minister found. And I remember that there was, there was a story, it was around a week after the earthquake stroke, that the uh, prime minister was appealing that all the funds has to go through prime minister fund. I don't know, Julie, if you have something to follow. Yeah, my understanding was that if you had like established a bank account at a Nepali bank to receive donations for earthquake victims, the government was going to appropriate those mm -hmm. funds and distribute them through the government, uh, ostensibly because this would ensure transparency. But of course, a lot of the Nepalese thought, well, this is so they could skim some off. And there were a lot of Nepalese who said that they thought you were very worried that during the aid process, whenever aid would be forthcoming, if it were forthcoming, there would be a lot of nepotism and um, shady dealings going on. And Tomas, you're planning on going back to Nepal, actually, and spending two or three weeks there. Is that yes. right? You're leaving on Monday, right? Yes, I'm leaving on Monday. I I was very much touched by this, this whole situation. Mm -hmm. And uh, especially, seriously, it's all those um, cultural heritage which uh, disappear, it's, it's, it's unbelievable to... I, I want to understand more what's going on in Nepal because what uh, for example one of my new Nepalese friends after the second stroke earthquake or big aftershock whatever we'll call it wrote on his Facebook yesterday he wrote I hope that uh, quakes will bring revolution and I want to understand why hmm. is he a Maoist um no on Facebook definitely not, okay. definitely <laughs> not. <laughs> There's, well, still listen, I, there's still Maoists there, right? There are. There yeah. are. I know that you have a hard stop in about 10 minutes, so um, with why don't we move now to, to recommendations, since there are five of us and we all like to get one in. Uh, and as is our tradition, let's begin with Jeremy. What do you have for us this week? Oh, something uh, that's quite worrying but worth reading is uh, 
an essay published in Politico, politico.com, by a fellow named Aaron L. Freeberg. Oh, God, that was, guy. I believe, security advisor to Dick Cheney uh, in the run-up to the Iraq war, the earlier Tells Iraq you all war. you need to know. Sure. Um, and his essay is called The Sleeper Issue of 2016 is China. <laughs> Why are we so worried about the Islamic State when Beijing is a real challenge? Wow. Um, I think it's worth reading because it's kind of gives the flavor of what seems to be a growing part of uh, the kind of Washington debate on China, at least in the run-up to the elections. Um, and it's worth understanding what they're thinking. It, it, along the lines as of this, is this his name Michael Pillsbury? Oh, come on, that guy. Right, right. The yeah. same thing, right? right? It's the same idea. Uh, let, me, let me just jump it's in here. It's a similar then. As, idea, yeah. As a, as, yeah. as a sort of uh, a, a counter to that, I suggest you read the much less um, kind of hyperventilating essay, or it's actually a transcription of a speech given by David Lampton uh, for the Carter Center in a, a, a program put on called, um, I think it was called China's Reform and China's Future. It was in Shanghai, done by the Shanghai Academy of Social Sciences and the Carter Center. It's a, a, a very, it, it talks about the U.S.-China relationship reaching a tipping point, and it, it, it is also a very sober uh Look at the state of U.S.-China relations, which certainly are not um, particularly sunny, despite you know sunny lands and despite um, other you know shirt sleeve summits and things like that. But let's let's um, I I think that's a much more reasonable and and, and well thought through. Uh, uh, well, well David the Kaiser, Lampen, yes, but uh, don't mistake uh, my saying you should read it for saying that it's it's right. Um, okay. And in fact, if you read David Lampton's essay, I think it's called The Tipping Point in U.S.-China Relations is Upon Us. I mean, his precise point is that you have people like Aaron Friedberg who are becoming more and more powerful voices. Yeah, so right. I think you should find out what those people are thinking. You sure. shut yourself off from them. Right. Okay, David, what about you? What do you got for us? Uh, real quickly, just we have talked in this podcast about the lack of uh, press and the lack of foreign interest in uh, local, in Chinese uh, intellectual elites uh, of the non-dissident type, of, mm -hmm. of, the, of the academic uh, and, and pro-government type. There's a book that may rectify that gap, or is that, that's the word? <laughs> do you rectify a gap or right, fill yeah. a gap or what do, you, gap, what do you bridge or... a gap? Yeah, called China's Futures. PRC elites debate economics, politics, and foreign policy. Oh, serious! By Daniel Lynch, uh, and he—it's uh, interesting because it's different topics, but he has called um, a, a lot of articles and opinions from the Nebu uh, uh -huh. articles and things, and then also including, uh, you know, uh, state uh, publications, uh, not just Nebu, but some things that are openly available, and called a, a, a sort of a survey of opinions, elite. Intellectual opinions from the inside. Well, I certainly want to get my hands on that. Yeah, that sounds like a very good recommendation. Thank you very much, Julie. What do you have for us this week? Um, I'm going to stick with Nepal. I mean, there was such a flood of coverage, and uh, it's hard to keep up with it all. But um, I actually want to recommend some video from New York Times. Um, Jonah Kessel did some really beautiful video. Yes. One in particular was called um, "Kathmandu Before and After the Quake." Right, I saw that. It was amazing. And um, if you know, if you didn't have time during all the news flood, I recommend going back. Um, the cultural heritage lost in Nepal is really quite deep. And these are not just sort of museum type structures that we might think of, but um, living, breathing spaces. 
and their loss is something much more profound than the loss of a tourist site um, mm-hmm. and how Nepal chooses to rebuild those and with what kind of international help I think is a um, important matter for discussion indeed it is indeed yeah Jonah Kessel who has been on the show he's just terrific his work is consistently great so I'd, I'd, I'd definitely give that in a ringing second Tomas, what do you have for us? Um, since I am the only Polish reporter in Beijing, and I guess I'm the first Polish one in the podcast. Yes, you I are. Right? Yes, yes. So <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. this time, recommendation not about China, but one of the uh, greatest Polish reporters, uh, Wojciech Tochman. He is a student of uh, big uh, Ryszard Kapuściński, which was one of the biggest reporters of 20th century. And Wojciech Tochman is a reporter specializing in the genocides. Mm. He wrote... Uh, books uh, from Bosnia, from Rwanda, uh, recently also about uh, slums in Manila. But I would want to, uh, I would want to recommend uh, like eating, like eating a stone. Uh, it's translated into English, and this is about uh, genocide in Bosnia. Ah, uh, okay. Like eating a stone. Like eating a I'll stone. I'll definitely check that out. Uh, and then I just want to cap off. I, I did give that Lampton recommendation, but I, uh, what Julie said just made me remember that I ought to point people to uh, New York Times uh, Sinosphere blog. Has just written about something my company has done, uh, which is it launched something that we call See You Again Kathmandu, uh, which is a, a project to crowdsource photos that have been taken of these UNESCO World Cultural Heritage Sites uh, to recreate them, at least digitally, so that people can see what they looked like uh, in three dimensions. So you can actually do these. Uh, it, it's really quite, it's it's sort of like immersive view, like street view kind of, um, that's the same technology that we use for indoor spaces for mapping. So definitely check that out. Uh, you can also, if you have been to Kathmandu, if you have photography of the, the many UNESCO World Heritage Sites, it's very easy. There's an English interface. You can upload your, your photos and, and be a part of this. So thank you very much. And uh, Julie, it's great to have you on finally. And we'll talk about a a more cheery topic next time, hopefully. Tomas, it's great to have you. Thank you. And uh, thanks for making the time. David, great to see you as always. Jeremy, good to hear from you, man. Hey, thanks, guys. Okay, we'll see you next week on the Seneca Podcast. Take care. (laughs) 